0: Modern.
1: modern modern modern
0: we're prepping for a voyage modern the force modern. of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't
1: you make that a double
0: modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 235 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by distiller and entrepreneur Tremaine Atkinson, who runs CH Distillery, Chicago's leading artisan spirits producer, and more importantly for this conversation, the manufacturer of Jepson's Malort. Many of you will be familiar with this bracingly bitter wormwood liqueur as a quintessential Chicago rite of passage or as a gentle punishment bestowed upon unruly guests by cheeky bartenders. But even if you haven't tried Malort yourself, you know that it has a serious reputation for being unapologetically bitter and in your face. But before we talk about how Tremaine brought this iconic Midwest spirit back to its rightful home in the Windy City for the first time in decades, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is The Hard Cell, which was developed by Chicago bartender Brad Bolt in 2009 for Bar DeVille. To make it, you'll need three quarters of an ounce of Jepson's Malort, three quarters of an ounce of London dry gin, three quarters of an ounce of elderflower liqueur like St. Germain, and three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with an expressed grapefruit twist. This cocktail is ostensibly a last word riff created using Malort as the herbal ingredient replacing chartreuse, and St. Germain as the mellow sweet ingredient replacing the maraschino liqueur. Of this drink, Robert Simonson is purported to have said, quote, St. Germain is a little too likable, and Malort is not likable enough. It makes sense. End quote. But in a move that demonstrates just how persnickety Malort can be as a cocktail ingredient, Bolt reportedly changed the formulation of the cocktail to feature a full ounce of gin and elderflower liqueur. This means if you do try this cocktail at home, I hope you'll write in to podcast at modernbarcart.com or message us on Instagram at Modern And let me know if you prefer the true equal parts last word riff or the more lopsided but potentially better balanced rendition. So, now that you've got an excuse to pick up a bottle of Malort next time you swing by your favorite liquor store, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating conversation with Tremaine Atkinson of CH Distillery, manufacturers of Jepson's Malort, some of the topics we discuss include... How Tremaine left his career in finance to jumpstart an old dream that once had him peddling kegs of beer in San Francisco, a move that ultimately resulted in the founding of CH Distillery. The complicated story of Jepson's Malort, which began as a DIY Swedish palate cleanser, then had a harrowing medicinal encounter with Prohibition, took a decades-long detour to the Sunshine State, and finally made a triumphant return to its spiritual home in Chicago. Why bitter tastes come with some strange psychological baggage, and why Wormwood, specifically Northern European Wormwood, is so crucial to the iconic bitterness of Jepson's Malort. We also delve into some of the more humbling experiences involved with acquiring a legacy brand, like the need to reverse engineer the Malort recipe from scratch, and that awkward moment when a room full of bartenders tells you it might taste a little too good. Along the way, we explored the history of Scandinavian besk spirits, the marketing move that had consumers asking, is there malort in this bourbon? Why taking shots is sometimes necessary to ensure quality control, and much, much more. If you've ever wondered how your friends talked you into that shot of malort at the end of the night, if you've ever pondered what it is about Chicagoans that makes them love a spirit that's so openly and intentionally unlovable, Or perhaps if you've been too afraid of its surly reputation to ever venture a taste, then this interview is for you. Please enjoy this bitter and not overly sweet conversation with Tremaine Atkinson of CH Distillery. Tremaine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's kick this off as we always do here, uh, just by having you introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do?
1: Uh, My name is Tremaine Atkinson. My title, official title is CEO and head distiller of CH Distillery. My unofficial title is head drinker,
0: which I prefer. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. Um, Well, CH Distillery kind of disguises one of the products that we're Going to be focusing at least a, a good chunk of our conversation on here. Uh, that product being Jepson's Malort, and uh, I'm super excited that we were put in touch by uh, ADI President Eric Owens because you know this this product Malort looms large in the consciousness of bartenders in particular, and the American drinking public in general. Um, so before we dive into all of the bitterness there and all of the awesome stories and lore behind Jepson's Malort, uh, I'm wondering if you might just, um, give us a story of CH distillery and, uh, and how, how you came to be in the position that you are today. Sure. Well,
1: and the two, the two are certainly linked. Um, and, and, uh, so I'll give you the, the background. I, um, I'll give you the sort of longer version. So, I, um, uh, my dad, uh, is a really smart guy. He has a PhD in physics from Stanford University. So, there we go. But my dad, by the age of 25, had three kids and, um, he was a professor and so he was broke. And one of the things that he liked to do was drink beer. So, rather than go to the store, in the early '60s, and buy beer. It was cheaper to buy a can of malt syrup, some baker's yeast, and throw that together with some water in a plastic garbage can, and you could make beer. So I have a legacy in my family of alcohol production. <laughs> nice, <laughs> but anyway, nice. so roll forward to about the about 1990, and I'm living in San Francisco, graduated from college, getting started in a career in finance, but really mostly interested in you know, beer and music and all the fun stuff that was going on in San Francisco. So my brother and I were chatting one day and we're like, there's this picture in the in the family album, which is of that plastic garbage can with a nice, you know, like head on it and a plastic dinosaur floating in it, which one of the, you know, one of the three boys had dropped in there. So we're like, oh, pop used to make beer. We should try that. So, you know, we went to the homebrew store and uh, we made a stout. And actually entered it in a homebrew competition and took second place, and um, it was just an extract and whatever, but it was like you know, boom, really eye opening. So I started really getting into it, and you know, very quickly went to uh, all grain brewing at home and yeast propagation. I had my own yeast lab and all of that stuff. And then I convinced two of my buddies to sort of join in on this, and then we started a brewery in uh, about 1991. In San Francisco, called North Beach Brewing Company. And our business plan was to uh, sell, deliver the like six to five gallon kegs to people, to drinkers in the city. Nobody was doing delivery of that. We didn't actually know if it was legal um, or any of that, but we just went ahead and got started. And we had like between the three of us who were all working full time doing something else, we scraped together $5,000. Well, the results were that we made good beer, but we only sold one keg to my mom for her book club. And, um, (laughs) yeah, so that, 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 yeah. So North Beach Brewing Company didn't really last too long, but there it was, it was kind of, you know, they had the idea in the back of my head. So now we'll roll, roll the clock forward. Oh boy. Another 20, 20 or so years more. And I moved to Chicago, uh, in 1998. So now about, yeah, almost 25 years ago. And for, for my career in finance, which was, you know going well and um i kept home brewing but after about 10 years of, of living in chicago so now 20 years or so in finance i kind of hit burnout point and i was really fortunate that i had saved up at that point i was in my late 40s enough money to re- potentially retire so i thought about that for a second and i was like yeah what am i going to do like play bad golf you know for <laughs> for the next like 40 years that that you know that yeah, a good day. Of, I mean, a bad day of golf is better than a good day of work, right? But probably not for 40 years. So then I thought, oh, well, I should start a brewery. And because uh, I had more than 5000 bucks. And, and then I pretty quickly thought no, oh, there's an awful lot of breweries out there. But this whole like micro distillery thing seems pretty interesting. And so that's what I that's when I decided to open CH, which was in 2013. Our original idea was, um, and it is still a a heart, you know, part of the kind of heart and soul of who we are, was to make a real handmade vodka, you know, from scratch, from grain, you know, milled, mash, fermented, distilled all the way through as a real product. Because I love vodka. I love many, many alcohols, but vodka is like my go-to. And so, and it's also, you know, a bestseller in, uh, in the liquor industry. So I thought, well, there that sounds like a decent business opportunity, something that I like. I'll be passionate about it and it has some growth potential. So that's what has been at the the core of CH's portfolio since 2013 and I'm still really proud of the fact that we are the best selling local vodka. We're the only ones who actually make vodka from scratch from Illinois grain and it's, you know, I, it's delicious vodka. So we were motoring along with our small distillery in the West Loop which we pretty quickly outgrew production, you know, cuz vodka's got volume to it. So Sure, sure. So we built a big distillery in the Pilsen neighborhood uh, of Chicago, which is about two miles south of downtown is nice industrial zoning. And so all of a sudden, we've got a 50,000 square foot facilities, the biggest one in Chicago, we have some capacity now. Okay, so that's sort of the story. Now, CH, uh, meanwhile, so that little uh, original distillery in the West Loop is still there. It has a, a it, it's primarily a cocktail lounge, uh, although now it's a cocktail lounge and one of the hottest sushi bars in town. The little thing that happened during the pandemic, who knew? So one of the, the, the law at that time in the state of Illinois was that if you're a craft distiller and have a tasting room, you can only serve what you make. Uh, that has since changed. But for the first eight years, we, we lived under that rule. So it gave us amazing motivation to make a whole bunch of different spirits. So we started making gins and rums. Whiskey, we stayed away from after making a couple batches of bourbon and that were absolutely horrible um, and also like killed our mill because our mill didn't like corn. But then we very quickly got into like uh, into making Amaros and, uh, you know, all types of sort of, you know, liqueurs. So anyway, so that's all going on. And meanwhile, I pick up a bottle of Malort one day and um, well, that's the next part of the story. So I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs>
0: Sure. Well, I, I love that. That's a, a, a wonderfully evocative cliffhanger. Just you know, picturing you walking up to a bottle of Malort and picking it up, and then you know, roll, roll commercials. We'll, we'll come back to that after the break. Um, well, I, I guess what we should do, we'll, we'll definitely come back to the CH portfolio because it seems like you know that that's really important to the story as well. But before we talk about what happened next, once you picked up that bottle of Malort, could you just explain to our listeners who many of them have tasted Malort in in their lives, but there I'm sure is still a significant group of people who are tuning in right now who will not know what it tastes like. And I, I guess before I let you give your description, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you one that I came across recently because it's been described in many ways, Uh, but one that I found online was baby aspirin wrapped in a grapefruit peel, bound with rubber bands, then soaked in well gin. Um, So Mm. take us from there. Do you agree, disagree? How how do you think it tastes?
1: Dead on. That's dead on. That's really good. (laughs) (laughs) But you can read another one and I would say that because, you know, Malort is just means different things to to different people. And it's not just a flavor. It also evokes other emotions, which is really fascinating. I, my, so I, I have a lot of fun ones, but my, the one that I usually tell people who haven't had Malort, what's it like? It's like taking a whole grapefruit and taking a big bite out of, out of the whole thing. And all the way down to the flesh, right? So you get some juice. Mm-hmm. So you get a little bit of, you know, that that sweetness. And then you get the rind and you get the pith. And it's all sort of like, boom, all at once. And what is a, what is most characteristic of Malort is its lingering bitter uh, flavor. That's, that's the thing that freaks people out.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> if they're not ready it, it for se- it. It seems like it's aggressive in a number of different ways. So I I come to this conversation with a pretty decent background in bitterness. I make cocktail bitters. We use gentian as our primary bittering agent. So I'm very familiar with that intensely bitter, but also a fairly clean style of bitterness. Whereas Mm -hmm. Malort is a wormwood based bitter and wormwood comes with its own entire set of flavors and connotations, right? It's obviously uh, very famously used in absinthe, but here in Malort, it seems almost like the apotheosis of wormwood. It is just crazy bitter, and you know, I, I wonder if you can talk about this intensity. You know, maybe we'll get into some of the history, but but if you can just speak a moment while we're here on the subject of flavor and talk about what that intensity does. I mean, because it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself automatically when you taste it to cocktails. Can can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Intensity of flavor is, um, is, is really, it's a fascinating subject and a lot of it has to do with palate development and the, um, and I'll, I'll give you a, sort of an example. So as a, as a vodka distiller or a gin distiller or really any type of distiller, when you're running your stills, the distillate is, is coming off the still at, you know, if it's vodka 192 proof. So 96% alcohol. I mean, it's about as high as you can get. And after doing this for, uh, you know, a year, right, six, six, nine, 12 months. I was able to walk up to the still and just swipe my finger on the, on the stream of distillate and taste it at 190 proof and not have my palate freak out. And it's not the best way to taste, but sometimes if you just need a quick, you know, I don't really want to cut it. I just want to taste it. Now, where did that, and most people probably couldn't do that. And all it is, is a skill. It's just a skill that you acquire from, from work. And the thing that is important as a, as a distiller is that you can taste past the alcohol, because the alcohol is the first thing that really attacks your palate. So even now that you know, an extreme 190 proof, let's go down to like 100 proof. 100 proof vodka has got a lot of alcohol in it, and that's typically where we taste our vodka coming off the still, is at 50% alcohol, and it takes a little while. Just I think it's physiologically and I think psychologically to be able to build your palate up to where you can taste past the alcohol, because you already know what that tastes like. You're looking for everything else. Bitter is in a very similar category to just the, the, the physiological and psychological effects of alcohol, maybe even a little bit more on the, psych, on the psychology side, because bitter, your body is trained or built, I should say, your body is built to reject bitter things because that's your body telling you, nope, that's poison. Don't eat those berries, don't eat those leaves. That's you know b- bitter, bad, bad, right? <laughs> so that, there, there's, there is like a really innate psychology to, to bitter things that makes people go, no, right? So like anything else, and uh, I, one of the, I, I've, I've long been fascinated with food and beverage and I love food writers. And there was a guy who was kind of popular in the 90s called Jeffrey, Jeffrey Steingarten. And he uh, really was really proud of sort of, you know, liking everything, but he hated kimchi. And um, uh. he, he, he actually, he decided he was going to like kimchi, or at least he wanted to understand it. And so he just set about and ate all different types of kimchi. And finally, he said after, you know, six months or something, it dawned on him that like he, he trained his body to start liking it and accepting it. And um, that's, you know, what I think a lot of bartenders have already in one way or another been through that training of, of you know, accepting bitter as something that is, it's okay. It's, it, it, as long as it's not poisonous. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting component of flavor. But if all you can taste is the bitter, then you sort of miss the rest of the party, you know, Anyway, that's a really long answer to your question, which is, to, it, but it, it sort of gets at the heart of Malort because Malort, I don't know if it's the most bitter, you know, spirit out there, but it certainly is way up there. And it doesn't have a ton of other flavors sort of masking that. I've got a an Amaro that I made, you know, 10 years ago that was just like a total bitter bomb, gentian and wormwood and uh, chinchona bark and grapefruit peel and um, just, but it's also got... Chocolate, honey, baking spices. And so you kind of go, whoa, bitter, but like, whoa, it's like biting a chocolate cake, you know, made from dark chocolate. So where Malort is more, actually, this will sound surprising maybe to people who know Malort. Malort is a lot more subtle than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this conversation was with you was the number of contradictions that we might come across. And it seems like this is maybe one of them, right? The fact that this liqueur, this Amaro is billed and sort of mythologized by bartenders as the most bitter, the most aversive thing that you can come across, the bombastic and in your face. And yet, I think that really the true heart of Malort and the reason why people come back to it and why it's such a beloved spirit, both in Chicago and in basically in any place with a a strong cocktail and bar program, uh, culture is because it does contain that subtlety. So what, what is the subtlety to, to what does it owe that characteristic?
1: So it, it, the, the, the primary flavoring ingredient in Jepson's Malort is wormwood. Okay. So the plant itself is like any plant. It sort of grows like a uh, what would be an example, almost like a grass, um, maybe like 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 a wheat stalk, which is a grass, right? And then, but it's got like some flower. It's got some tiny little flowers on it. And so, if you sort of take the the, the piece of wormwood, a, a stick of wormwood, um, you've got the little leaves and the and the very tiny little branches. And those the, the leaves in particular not surprisingly have, uh, or the flowers have the floral qualities. They have some really subtle, really nice kind of soft and very alpine type of characteristics. Then as you go further down the plant, closer to the root, as the stock gets thicker, that's where you start picking up the bitterness. And so that's really what you're getting as the flavor profile in Millard is all of the different components of a, of a wormwood plant
0: right and you know one of the things that i always think of when i taste something that's bittered with wormwood primarily as opposed to gentian or you know something very gentle like a hops is that i i pick up almost like some some metallic notes in there for for whatever reason to me it it strikes the same parts of my palate that uh you know would be struck when when i it's it's hard to describe it as anything else uh than than a metallic taste i don't know if that maps on
1: yeah and i i it it is really distinct it's not as um it doesn't play as well with others as gentian uh chinchona is can be a little pro- polarizing too but gentians are really it, it gentian is like hey i'm bitter but you know come and hang out with me and i won't really interfere with you otherwise Whereas wormwood is just like now, I'm I'm my thing, so I'm the party.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I'm I'm glad that you actually brought up wormwood and like the the physical plant of it because as I was doing research on your website, which has a, a really lovely timeline, uh, we'll certainly link to it in the show notes for this episode. But it's got a, lo- a really lovely timeline with some historical photos, and at one point in history. Jepson's Mallore actually came with a stock of wormwood in the bottle. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: yeah, it it did actually. We have one of those bottles, from uh, we think it's from probably about the the nineteen seventies, and actually that is something that we're. It's going to be our ninetieth anniversary next year, twenty twenty three, and so we're looking at uh, bringing that back and sort of a limited edition, having that sprig of wormwood now, and we've actually we've we've experimented with it and. Uh, we're pretty sure that the, the the sprig of wormwood that went in to those bottles was one that had already been extracted, and I, I can talk more about what that means. So, is a little more decoration than necessarily additive to the flavor.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well wh- Why don't you? Yeah. Bring it. Bring us into what that means, and uh, I guess. You know, like you just referenced that uh, Jefferson Malort's about to turn ninety. So, uh, if in the process you can give us uh, maybe some of the the high points in that journey, feel free to bring us through anything that that makes sense and is going to really bring this story to life for our listeners.
1: Yeah. So, the you know, really, where where does where does a spirit like Malort come from in the first place? Uh, it 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 really just comes from um, a very long you know sort of human tradition of beverages, and particularly alcoholic beverages, being a, a part of the cuisine, right? And so particularly, it seems in more northern climates, there is that you get a lot of these types of things that are rather extreme in flavor, whether they're bitter or maybe, you know, very strong and herbal. We now think of those as aperitifs and digestives, Right. Or, you know, there's a lot of different words for it, but that means that they're related to the, uh, they're, they're part of the way that you consume a meal, right? And so an aperitif is supposed to be something that whets your appetite, and then a digestive is something that helps you uh, with digestion after a large meal, right? And so that, that, to me, is really sort of the modern context of, of spirits, that, of, of liqueurs in, in general. But that said, if we roll the clock back much further, you know, when food supplies were much more limited, particularly during the winter and northern climates, you had people, you know, people had to subsist by eating preserved food, which was mostly food preserved with salt. And it didn't taste, if, to our modern palates, it wouldn't probably taste that great or it would certainly be extreme. And so you get something like uh, like the Scandinavian culture in Sweden. Where you have you know you have preserved fish lutefisk or all you know these different things that are you know pretty crazy and so you're, if you're eating that you, you kind of need something to go with it that is going to a stand up to it and b uh, maybe give you a little offset to that really salty thing and that's that's where malort which uh, we call it malort but it's besk uh, that's where it came from so that the what Jepsen's malort is is a Swedish besk which was originally developed to essentially, you know, help you tolerate really extreme tasting preserved fish.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating because, um, you know, normally when you think of Chicago, you, the, the, the big stereotype from like, like on the East Coast here is like, oh, you, uh, very Polish, like there's a, 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 everybody knows that there's a large Polish population in Chicago, but I don't think we necessarily think of Swedish. I mean, it's certainly the Midwest in general has a, a lot mm-hmm. of people of Nordic descent. Um, but can you talk about how, like, I guess the Swedish connection enters the Chicago picture?
1: Sure. I mean, there there were uh, you know a, a, a good amount of Northern European immigrants into into the Midwest and. The Scandinavians, I think, tended to settle a little bit further north, more like in, in Minneapolis, um, in northern Wisconsin. But definitely, there's always been a strong Swedish community in Chicago, and when what is now the Andersonville neighborhood, uh, a gentleman named Carl Jepsen was born in sometime in the uh, late 1880s, and in Ustad Sweden, which is in the kind of the southernmost part of Sweden, and he he immigrated to Chicago started a family and, and brought, brought this taste of home of best. So even today in Sweden and a lot of other places, people, but particularly in Sweden because alcohol taxes are incredibly high. So it's better to just buy something the cheapest that you can and then add some flavor to it. And so it, today, uh, as we speak, people are soaking uh, wormwood and, and other things in what they call snaps, which are just basically kind of grain alcohol. And, and making their own. So it no surprise that Carl Jepsen did the same thing in his kitchen when he got here. And it was just something he he did at home. And then uh, then this, you know, crazy little thing called prohibition happened. And he, he kind of saw an opportunity, which was that, you know, in the Volstead Act, that one of the exceptions was for medicinal purposes, right? And so, you know, he would people, you know, of course, he had, you know, friends who were not from Sweden and they would taste his stuff and say, you know, ah, right. It's very extreme. <laughs> and, um, so he thought, well, I bet I can sell this as medicine. And so he went door to door. He went around, uh, Chicago and, and sold, sold his Jepson's Malort and, uh, the feds every now and then would, you know, harass him for selling alcohol. And he'd say, you know, here, taste it. And they would try it. And they'd say, well, nobody would drink that recreationally. So you're fine. <laughs>
0: It's so funny because uh, we're actually in the process of of uh, getting our our bitters moved to a co packer, and so we're going through once again the the TTB process. Where that it it just sounds like you you know you described something straight out of the prohibition era, and yet our process for getting. A bitter, a, a non-beverage alcohol product, slightly different than malort, but a non-beverage mm-hmm. alcohol product is exactly that to this day. Where I need to send a sample to the TTB, and somebody not only needs to approve the formulation on paper, but some person needs to ingest what I sent them and go, bah, like that. That doesn't taste good. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah it, and it it's interesting too. You know, we think of malort as this. You know, just bottle behind the bar, but it actually shares this like medicinal, I guess, history in common with other iconic ingredients like Angostura bitters and especially Peychaud's bitters here in the US. Angostura was able to avoid the prohibition. Issue by not being in the U.S., but uh, Antoine de showed uh, with his cocktail bitters that are iconic to all those amazing New Orleans cocktails. You know, kind of did the same thing. He was, you know, an apothecary slash uh, pharmacist down there, and and so you know, it's really interesting to know that Malort shares in that tradition, and uh, certainly a good way to survive Prohibition. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, you've heard me talk about Near Country quite a bit over the last year, and I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, but they've upped the ante yet again and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis or you can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show what happened after prohibition kind of fizzled out what did the trajectory of malort look like cuz it, see, it seems to me that the middle of the 20th century was really a time when it captured the hearts and minds of certainly the people of chicago
1: this is all mostly folklore right but there there is there is some knowledge because there are some direct sort of descendants of um, of the family but basically I'm not sure why, but but at once prohibition was over, I think Carl Jepsen thought, oh this is you know this isn't going to work anymore. but there were of course now distilleries popping up, and uh, one of them in Chicago, which was called Red Horse, uh, or rather uh, DJ Beelsoff, they later ra- that Red Horse is their um, brand name, but they uh, were aware of this product and obviously saw some commercial potential and bought the formula from Carl Jepsen and started making it as a commercial product. And that's when it became Jepson's Malort. Uh, And it was made here in Chicago. And um, it turned into um, sort of a hobby for a gentleman named George Brody. George had married into the Bielzoff family and later became the owner and president of the company. And he sold off all of the other brands because he was actually a lawyer a very well educated lawyer um, a really interesting guy and he sold off all of the other products other than malort because he loved it so much because the just the the marketing you know fun with it was just it, it was it was so joyful for him so it really became kind of a kind of a, a business hobby for George Brody he had the company all the way from 1945 to when he passed away in 1988 and along the way, he uh, his wife had passed away, and he had hired a legal secretary named uh, Pat Gablek, Patricia, and uh, Pat had after his wife had died to become his best friend, and they traveled together, and she took care of him. So when George passed away, he left the company to Patricia, in his will, and then we ended up, you know, three or, three or four years ago, buying the, the the company from from Pat. So the 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 Chicago legacy is is short and tight, <laughs> or rather long but tight.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Now I remember sitting down with uh, Eric Owens, who introduced us, and he was telling me about the fact that Malort, you know, this iconic Chicago brand, was being produced in Chicago once again for the first time in a long. While. And I I guess as somebody who also makes bitter things and, you know, who who tastes a lot of spirits and and works with, uh, you know, a lot of different cocktails, I'm very curious about what the process of not necessarily acquiring Malort was like, because that sounds fairly transactional. You sign some papers, money exchanges hands. But what was it like to take it from where it was being produced by a co-packer and suddenly bringing that back to Chicago and in-housing it how yeah how did, how, how did that go
1: pre, that was a pretty um, it was a pretty interesting process the, I'll, I'll i'll just start with a, a brief thing which is that there are basically two ways well okay there are multiple ways to flavor things but in the world of of liqueurs you either use a natural ingredient uh or you use a flavor from a flavor house and there are all types of products that are wonderful that have either or both of those now, in, in our case, being, you know, a craft distiller, we're, we've always been really fascinated with ingredients, right? And so all of the products that, that we've made under the CH line, we're always starting from whole ingredients and getting our, our flavors that way. Now, sometimes you, you might distill them like in a gin, but for a liqueur where, you're going, where you don't care about the color, it, basically you can soak anything in alcohol, right? And extract the flavor out of it. You know the best the best example that everybody knows whether they're aware of it or not is vanilla extract right that's made by taking vanilla beans and soaking them in about 100 proof alcohol and that alcohol is the solvent it extracts all those flavors out and then you have this alcohol uh, this vanilla flavored alcohol right so uh you can do the same thing with basically any ingredient and in the case of malort that means What we do is we take these big, you know, branches of wormwood and soak them in high proof alcohol as that's our first step. And that's how we're going to get that, that liquid worm, wormwood flavor into the final product. So yeah, we, yes, it was, it was, it was a nice transaction. Um, Patricia is a really wonderful lady. She wanted to retire. She had real, real love for the tradition of Malort. George was was an incredibly important person in her life and he loved it so that means she loved it and wanted to take care of his legacy although she would never drink it. <laughs> and so I picked up that bottle of Malort in 2013 after I started my distillery and said why is this made in Florida you know and so I tracked down a bartender who uh, worked part time for Pat as his as her marketing uh, guy. And I said, what's going on? He said, well, there are no distilleries in Chicago. And I said, well, yes, there are now. He, he said, well, you know, this would be amazing. Let's, let's work and try to get the co-packing business for you guys so that we can bring production back to Chicago. So Sam and I worked on that for five years with Pat. Um, I met her a couple of times. She toured our big distillery. And I said well, we'll basically make it for you know uh, almost no money. I, I we just want the pride of of Malort coming back to Chicago. And she kept turning me down, basically saying you know things are going fine. She ran the apart the uh, company from her apartment on Lakeshore Drive, uh, with just Sam as her part time employee, and it was doing just fine. So after about five years of bugging her, I gave up. And then she, about six months later, she asked Sam to call me and say basically that she wanted to retire and that she thought I was the right person and that CH was the right distillery to, to carry on the legacy of the brand. So little, uh, like no pressure, right? You know, you buy a Chicago iconic, you know, brand, and um, now you got to figure out how to make it. So when the deal closed, it closed essentially by email. Right. And one of the emails that I got was the formula and you know, it it was just like a PDF of a spreadsheet, you know. That that's all it was, and so I kind of had to work from that to try to figure out how to make malort. So we took that that uh, PDF and we made a batch of malort based off of it, and it tasted all wrong. And the company that was down in Florida, you know, it was they just they were working from the same thing. They had their process of making it, but they you know they didn't really care to share anything with me but I don't blame them. So we just thought, well, let's just let's just rebuild this from, from scratch, we know what Malort tastes like. And um, so we did that. Now, when we bought the company, we bought a, an inventory of bottled product with it, and which worked out well because we needed some time to make it, so we needed something to sell. So we anticipated that that stock that we had would last us about six months. Of course, when the news came out that Malort was coming home to Chicago, sales accelerated and that six months of inventory turned into about three and a half so we're we were um we were under the gun to figure this thing out and we probably made 50 different test batches one of the things that and you know this as uh, as somebody who makes bitters very small changes in in a recipe can have massive impact right it's and ironically what happens is what I've noticed is that the fewer ingredients that you have, and Malort does not have a lot of ingredients, the bigger bigger those small changes have an impact. So we were just dialing around like these tiny little adjustments in sugar level and in alcohol um, extraction level and flavoring level and all this stuff. And all of a sudden we're like, well, we got to put a batch out or it's going to run out. And so we put a batch out. And it was our first batch. It was maybe, you know, it was really small, just enough to sort of get things going, maybe, you know, 500 cases. And <laughs> we invited the top 20 Malort uh, bars in Chicago to the distillery for the grand unveiling of the first Chicago Malort in, you know, 50 years or whatever. And, <laughs> and we all did a shot together. and every, and every And we looked at all of our, you know, wonderful guests and customers and, you know, tradition bearers. And everyone was like, "Huh? Yeah, it tastes really good." And we're like, "Oh no! <laughs> what do you mean?" And they're like, "Oh, it's, it's really smooth." And then then we we all did a second shot, and and they were like, "Yeah, but it's malort. It it's awesome. Good job, you guys." And I I was at once very grateful because there are such you know lovely people who would tolerate you know malort having changed. And, and and but much more than that it was horrified that we did not meet the mark and wow. uh you know it's just it it, it it you you have to always be ready to be humble because
0: <laughs> right oh uh, man as you were telling that story i was like i was feeling it viscerally i was like oh no what's going to happen um so what what does one do when the top 20 Malort bars in Chicago give you that kind of feedback?
1: You listen, is what you do. <laughs> and uh, and they were right. Um, we had, I think, you know, sometimes when you're bogged down in a project and then all of a sudden you're also under time pressure, is not an excuse, just a fact of life, is that you can lose some of your, your perspective. And I think we lost a little bit of what the target of Malort was and sort of drifted to a place where we thought was right, but you know, it really wasn't. So very quickly we went back to the the drawing board now when i say drawing board this is where you know it's the fun of the job but you know it's also it's it's where you need um some tolerance skills let's just say because with pretty much in any other spirit that we make we're when we're taste testing it you know we're sitting we're sitting with it we're taking a small sip we're rolling it across our tongue we're you know really really evaluating it thinking about it trying to pick up everything we initially did that with Malort and then we all looked at each other. We said, well, nobody really drinks Malort like that. And let's make sure we're doing shots because that's the way most people drink it. And that's the ultimate test. So that's the protocol. That is the official protocol here at CH distillery for a batch of Malort is to do shots. So you can imagine when you're in the research lab and you are, you know, you've got six different variants of, of Malort. And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a, takes a, a special group of people to be able to do that, which really means just, a
0: uh, you know, people who like to drink a lot, <laughs> man, there's so many things I'd love to call this episode. Let's make sure we're doing shots. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Um, it's our job. It's, yeah. So, okay. So the feedback that you received was that it was a little bit too smooth and did. Maybe it tasted too good. Uh, and I'm certainly not asking you to divulge any of the secret sauce uh, that you don't feel comfortable divulging, but what does one do to take something and I guess make it rougher, less smooth, less palatable? Yeah. Uh, and maybe this this might tie into something that I noticed on your site saying that you you get the strongest, most unpalatable wormwood you can. So maybe this ingredient quality attribute is also something worth discussing.
1: Yeah. First of all, so the recipe or formula for Jepson's Malort is is a secret. Now I, I'm smiling when I say that because it's it's really kind of funny. You know, we were able to reverse engineer it pretty easily, and as I think probably most people could. So we just hold on to that because it's always been a thing about it. If you ask me for the recipe for any of any of our other products, I, I'll, just, I'll send it to you. You know, we, we love transparency and openness. So what I can tell you is that Malort has, yeah, it's got the, the wormwood extracted into alcohol. It, it's a liqueur. So by by federal definition, that means it has sugar in it and then it has alcohol in it. Right. And then maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a little bit of other stuff what I will say is there, are, uh, everything is, is purely natural. There are no artificial ingredients and there are no flavors purchased from a flavor house or anything like that. This is like, you know, we make it, we make it at home. We just happen to have a 50,000 square foot distillery as our home. <laughs> sure. So um, that said there aren't a lot of, 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 levers to, to, to kind of push and, and tweak. So one, yes, is the source of Wormwood now about, five years ago, Patricia had cultivated a source for wormwood from Northern Europe that was exceptional. And she entered into a contract and and bought it. So we've been the beneficiaries of that as our supply. That said, we're starting to outstrip that supply because Malort as as a commercial enterprise has grown tremendously in the last couple of years. And so we're, we're, we are actually we have a really fun project, which is just find uh, additional sources of really wonderful slash awful wormwood. We're, we're fortunate enough, we found a, a, a farm in just outside of Ustad, Sweden, which is where Carl Jepsen is, was born. We are talking with them and we're going to visit them for the Malort harvest in August. And so we're hoping that they are going to become a, another major supplier of wormwood for us. But it is really important to get, and I don't, I, I don't know why. I, we've grown wormwood. Uh, we've had guests who've grown it at their home and brought it to our bar. We've, we've bought it from all over uh, domestically. The, the plant grows just about anywhere. And very. we basically haven't found anything um, other than wormwood from Northern Europe that really, really tastes right. And mm-hmm. so that's, a, that's an important part. And then how you extract it at what proof That's it, going to, there are water-soluble and alcohol-soluble flavors in in, in anything. And so, um, you know, the more water you have, the more you're going to bring out the water-soluble flavors. Uh, so that's, that's a factor. We played around with that a lot. So once you have that kind of nailed down, then from there, it's really uh, sugar level is probably the single biggest factor in flavor. So by federal definition, a liqueur has to have has to have at least two and a half percent sugar by weight. Now m- most liqueurs have far more than that. Um, uh, you, you'd see, you know, it would not be atypical to see in the twenty in the twenty percent level. And Malort is actually just touching right on that two and a half percent. So it's a very low sugar level. But the difference between let's say two point eight percent and two point seven five percent, you can taste, uh, and it, it makes a big, big impact on the overall flavor. It's crazy to think that's like taking like a little pinch of sugar and adding it to, you know, hundred gallons and all of a sudden you change the flavor. Those are the big factors in it. And it, it, it it's also then a question of, you know how much of the wormwood you're using, there, there, there's a bunch of other things in there. So I, I could geek out, I, but that's one of the things we do here is we geek out on, you know, building as I'm sure you do as a bitters guy
0: kind of what I was saying I was like huh, this sounds a lot like the stuff that I talked to uh, to my co-founders mm-hmm. about yeah and it, the other thing too is that uh, not only does you know adjusting the sugar in just those tiny incremental ways that you described make such a big difference but I find that that difference is almost definitely amplified by the presence of bitterness that's why you know bitter and mm-hmm. sweet as two tastes are so intertwined in our consciousness. And you know, I I think knowing the 2.5% federal regulation about sugar and knowing that Jepson's Malort doesn't really go much beyond that might be a light bulb moment for those folks who are out there wondering what makes Malort so intense, right? Because you're not really using that sugar in the same way as like, sure, you can... You know, take a shot of Campari, for example. And at this point in my life, you know, like uh, sipping on Campari straight it sounds rather lovely, you know, mm-hmm. whereas it, it might not have the first time I tasted Campari. Right yeah. now, I, I could certainly do that. I'd prefer it to be on ice, but that's not for a flavor. Thing that's more for just like a a dilution and texture type of thing. So yeah, I mean it's it's great to know all this stuff about malort because I I think it it does have this you know kind of big bad wolf reputation. But the you know the things that I'm pulling out from our conversation is that really it's rather simple. You know, there's nothing unnatural or scary about it. And I got to say, going back to some of these contradictions that I was expecting to encounter. One of those other contradictions is I wasn't expecting Malort to have a terroir to it. I wasn't expecting that the source Mm. of the wormwood from Northern Europe would necessarily be one of those quality indicators. I thought, you know, when I think Malort, I think cultural terroir, you know, you know, you should be taking this shot in a Chicago style bar uh, and it should be aversive and the bartender shouldn't be nice to you. Uh, (laughs) But to actually have like a real natural terroir to it is a really fascinating component to the story. So I, I wouldn't be able to Get away with not bringing up the Jepsons whiskey because this is also that, an interesting story that Eric Owens and I were speaking about. So, yeah, uh, can you talk about Jepsons whiskey, the the uh, the product that you launched there?
1: Yes, um, and while while I'm uh, getting my brain ready for that, I'm gonna pour myself actually a little shot of Malort because oh my goodness, if we if we're if we're um, if we're talking about doing something else with the Jepsons name, I have to do a penalty shot. Well, hold so. hold hold
0: on one second. Hold on. Yeah, I will go. I don't have any I don't have Malort with me, but I I will I will go get uh I will go get an Underberg. Ah, so at least I perfect. can I can join you in a shot of something bitter. Why All not? right. Okay. We've got our bottle of Underberg here. I can't let Can't let you do this alone. <laughs> You're a good man. <laughs> All right. Cheers to Jepson's Malort. <laughs> Woo! That's the second time I've done uh, a shot of Underberg on this podcast.
1: <laughs> this is not the first time I've done a uh, shot of Malort be- well before noon. Um, it you know it's funny I it, I I'm, I talk about it and you know I can talk intellectually about it I can talk about its subtlety and all that but then you you do a
0: shot and it's like man that stuff wow that's got a that's got a punch <laughs> yeah. So tell me about the uh, the Jepsons whiskey project.
1: So I, I I sort of halfway joke that we decided to just shamelessly exploit the the good name of Jepsons for a product line where we we had a long history but um, it wasn't selling that well. So I mentioned that when we started up CH we made a few batches of bourbon and that were terrible and. So since our bar needed a a good whiskey, uh, we decided instead to just go ahead and purchase barrels from MGP in Indiana. One of the big private label bourbon producers makes fabulous, fabulous whiskey. And so we bought that and that uh, became CH bourbon. And one of the things we did, because you know we kind of didn't like it that people were faking that they were making their own whiskey, is we were one of the early ones to um, just put right on the label, we didn't make this but you know, it tastes really good. And then we've always been into, and this is really true across the whole product line uh, into really trying to provide good value for the dollar. We were, we, you know, and particularly when it came to the bourbon, we're like, well, if we didn't make it, you know, we can't make up some story to, you know, make it sound more valuable than it is. So we sold it at, you know, at a pretty low cost. It did pretty well. And we sold it at 105 proof because um, we were buying young bourbon and young bourbon tends to taste better at higher proof. So it did pretty well with some cocktail business under the CH line, but it never really took off, which was fine. But at some point we made an investment in a pretty large number of barrels and they, you know, we, we weren't selling them fast enough to be able to take it out at two and a half or three years. And so we now all of a sudden had a bunch of four and five-year-old bourbon barrels. And we're like, huh, well, this stuff's pretty good. Maybe we should rethink this. And so that's when we came up with the idea for Jepson's bourbon, which is a, it's a blend. So it depends on, you know, what's tasting good now, but we have a, uh, at this point, we have a, a really, really big inventory of MGP from Indiana. Um, we have Green River from Kentucky and uh, some Dickel from Tennessee. So uh, it, it will be comprised of of those three things potentially. And uh, at the same time, since we had purchased the Malort brand, we thought, well, let's let's see if we put the Jepson's name on it, if it might just capture a little more attention. CH has developed as a really, really great on-premise brand. So bars and restaurants are the by far the primary buyers of the product. So it's well known in the Chicago bartending community, but not quite so much in the general public, whereas Jepson's is. And so... We launched, not making this up, April 1st, 2020. Back in November of 2019, we thought, oh, that'd be kind of a fun April Fool's joke. And, um, then it wasn't really, then we sort of really forgot about that, right? Everybody was thinking about other stuff, but we went ahead and launched it. And actually what was, what was kind of hilarious, um, and telling is that when we did announce it on April 1st, people were like, oh, this has to be an April Fool's joke. Like, you know, this is what Malort bourbon. So that, 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 that was kind of funny. So now we're about what, two years later and Jepson's bourbon has sold way outsold CH bourbon. It is a, a better bourbon. It's still at a really fair price, but the thing that we've have discovered again, always be ready to be humble is that uh, at first people were like, oh, well that's the Malort bourbon. And we thought, okay, well you know, that's cool. That's, you know, people are kind of, Putting the two together, and then we would get. But does it have malort in it? And we would even get that question. It says right on the label, you know, straight bourbon whiskey. And we would even get
0: bartenders who are like, does it have malort in it? <laughs> and and that's it's it's funny because it's it's a question of like you don't know which valence that question is being asked. And it's like, right? Does this have malort in it or? Ooh, does this have Malort in it? Like, yeah. they're, you know, kind of with the head nod of like, oh, this could be a thing. That's that's an interesting, uh, interesting little note there.
1: So I, we actually I, I was just reminded of this because I saw one of our little posters for um, Jepson's bourbon and it says got a picture of the bottle. It's very lovely. And um, oh, and by the way, the, the label that we chose for Jepson's bourbon, this is important, looks just like the Malort label, just in a different color scheme. And um, so we were really intentional about making it, you know, uh, potentially confusable with Malort. And um, one of our little marketing slogans was, no, it doesn't have Malort in it. We're not savages. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, roll the clock forward about a year and a half. And um, sales had gone, had gone really nicely. And they were starting to kind of plateau. And you had a lot of discussions with the sales team about that. And... What they said was that people were really hesitant because, of, because they thought it had Malord in it. And while that was kind of funny at the beginning, we realized that we're, we needed to um, sort of be able to move on. And so we're actually just just in the last stages in the next month or so, we're, we're not rebranding it. It'll still be Jepson's Bourbon, but we completely redid the label so that it doesn't look like a bottle of Malord anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So there, there again is the power—a testimony to the power of Malort
0: for good and for bad. (laughs) Exactly, I think that's—I think that's such a a fitting saga for something that was launched during the pandemic. Of like, all right, we're not really in this pandemic situation anymore. We're coming out of it. We need to—we need to kind of put put things back on track a little bit here. Well, Jermaine, this has been really fun. Uh, I really appreciate you spending all this time kind of taking us through the not just the history and the lore, but also kind of the the nuts and bolts, the science of Malor. What makes it taste in that kind of like iconic bracing way that it does? Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up here? Sure.
1: So as I mentioned, when we bought the brand, a lot of pressure on us. And, um, and you know, we also kind of, you know, we kind of screwed up the first batch a little bit and whatever. And um, so the first couple of years, we're really just, you know, trying to uh, not, not make any mistakes. Right. With Malort. And really, because we really do honor it and we love it. But as we've gotten a little further into the brand, we're, we're allowing ourselves to have some fun. Um, with it as well. And so now we've got a whole bunch of variants, which are which are available in some places and not in others, and sometimes just at our own bar on the West Loop. But we have uh, a barrel-aged Malort now. Um, we have a couple of different versions of that. We have shared barrels with breweries. So for example, we have a 312 barrel-aged Malort at our bar right now. We've got a, a Mezcal barrel, uh, just a single barrel, and aged malorn it, it. tastes like the weirdest cough syrup of all time. Um, and uh, But probably my favorite project that we did was actually during the pandemic, um, Josh Deeth, who's the, the founder and owner of Revolution Brewery here in Chicago, one of my favorite breweries called me up and he said, dude, we've got all these kegs and we're just gonna have to dump them. Can you do anything with them? And um, in addition to making hand sanitizer, which we immediately did, we were like, okay, let's re- let's let's go on a beer beer rescue mission. So um, we got 1,400 kegs from Revolution, distilled them into a spirit, and then turned that spirit into Malort, uh, which we call antihero Malort. And um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it sort of goes it sort of goes on and on. So um, that, I guess that was my little shameless marketing plug. Look out, you know, keep a lookout. Oh, and there's Malort spritz. Which is a canned cocktail um grapefruit soda hibiscus lime, and malort that is made by our f- great friends at Mars Brewing Company in bridgeport it's It's almost like you know malort as uh, for kids now I don't mean that literally
0: for children um <laughs> but people who are kids at heart <laughs> sure 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 uh or people who just don't want to volunteer to have their taste buds blasted off uh you know when they're when they're day drinking uh, exactly. well. <laughs> You know, I'm really glad that we ended on this note because it seems like the the history and the, the sort of cultural resonance of Malort is one thing, but it seems like you are only picking up momentum and things are only going to get weirder and more wonderful from here. Uh, so I will encourage our listeners uh, to check out some of these new projects In addition to, you know, maybe next time you're on your way through the liquor store, pick up a a bottle of that Malort for your home bar and start playing around with it. But uh, Tremaine, this has been super educational for me. And I want to thank you so much for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast.
1: Thank you, Eric. A pleasure to be here.
0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Malort's insights and storytelling, courtesy of Tremaine Atkinson of CH Distillery, makers of Jepson's Malort, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.